When you're in the psych ward, there's something you don't consider. That's Ross. When it's all over, you've got to go back to work. And when you go back to work, and you've been in the, in, off at the funny farm, in the loony bin, they treat you different. Ross is a stand-up comedian, and this joke was one of the first he wrote about his mental illness. It's like they're all walking on eggshells around you. Like, what do they think I'm going to do? Strip my clothes off naked, crap on the boss's desk, wipe it on the wall and start shagging the photocopier? I'm going to shag the photocopier. Again. That works a lot better um, on stage with all the, all the um, exaggerated movements and jumping around, but yeah. You're listening to Love Canberra, a show about love, sex, and relationships here in the heart of the nation. I'm Ivana Ho. I've always loved comedy. But I never had a clue how to really get up there and do comedy. And I wasn't always a natural joke teller. Then sometimes in a group I'd suddenly say something that, or did something that had people laughing. And afterwards I'm thinking, hang on, how did I actually do that? Started off back in 2010, I had the extreme good fortune to do a quite intensive weekend course with Tim Ferguson from the Doug Anthony All-Stars fame and that was fantastic uh, that taught me a great deal and he was encouraging us to go out there and do stand-up because that's what teaches you if a joke you know how a joke works and if it works because the focus of his course was actually narrative comedy which you know writing sitcoms movies whatever I still was had opportunities to go and try out stand, my stand-up, but I was always too scared. Then about 12 months later, at the Canberra University where I was studying at the time, I came across up a little small poster up on a notice board advertising a comedy course for people who had mental health issues or history. So I thought, that sounds like me. So I got in touch and I found myself doing a three-month uh, program with Marie Antoinette and that was every week she'd meet with us and we just built our way up to how to how to write gags how to tell gags doing all sorts of things and improving ourselves over time and getting more confident being forced to practice with a mic which we all hated and ultimately finishing off with a our own comedy show which um, Went, went quite well, and the buzz of performing like that uh, had me hooked. The reason for the, the comedy, it was for treating, using comedy to help with coping with mental trauma. Um, and certainly the people 
that did it that first year, we were a very mixed group. Uh, my history is with depression and it later turned out after I finally had a very detailed psychological analysis done. <laughs> it was a real grab bag of all sorts of things, but there was a very strong anxiety component. That gives me difficulties in coping with things at times and using comedy to address that trauma helped uh, reduce the effect of that trauma. There were other people there who had a variety of um, different things and we all benefited from it because by the end we all having a great time doing the show and doing the comedy and so a lot of my a lot of my better gags that I've written are reflecting on my my uh, history with an experience with uh, my depression and treatment and anything else that comes to mind. How do you think that comedy does help someone who has a mental health disorder? How did it help you? It helped me by just making fun of it. And if you can laugh at something in a good way, then it, you'd lessen the impact of that, the ability of that to hurt you. If you're at a show that's very funny and you're laughing and enjoying yourself, then you're not feeling very negative. You're feeling very, very positive and up. And in performing comedy and writing comedy, you can have, have that same experience. Plus, you're taking things that could be quite grim and able to turn them around and just make them funny or fun. A gag I like doing, though it doesn't always go down especially well, but when I tried to commit suicide by taking every pill in the house, that's pretty grim. So I made the gag then became that a lot of them were, were uh, laxatives, so I ended up spending the next three days in the toilet having a mental breakdown. Was that true? No. I took every every pill in the house and there may have been laxities amongst them, I don't know. But in writing comedy, just about all good comedy has an element of truth as the starting point. That's what helps make it, make it believable. You then add to it, you exaggerate, you build on it, you throw other things into it. But you always come from that some sort of very small starting point. And that was a, a lesson very much from Tim Ferguson. Anyone who's aware of the Doug Anthony All-Stars material may wonder how could you on earth say that all well, their stuff starts with the truth? Well, it could be a very, very simple truth. <laughs> Something as simple as, I like eating biscuits. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't be able to build up on that. No, no, actually, no, I don't think I could. Oh, yeah. I, I might be able to, but it'd have to be a bit surreal and stupid and wouldn't be very funny, I suppose. But you start with a, a truth and build on it, exaggerate, and then you throw a big twist that, that throws the the unexpected, and just helps you make fun of a, of a situation. When were you diagnosed with depression? Well, uh, I'm not quite sure when I was, they first said, oh, I think you might have a bit of depression but certainly I had my first first full-on um, psychiatric episode in 2004 which saw me in the psych ward uh, for oh, I don't know about 10 days or so I, think. I just forget now 
and almost a year t to the day later I was back again for a, a longer stay and that time I, I think I, I they did the right thing by keeping me there longer and not sending me back to work too quickly as happened the previous time but it was a very long slow um, coming back. As anyone who had the misfortune to work with me at the time will be aware I was a problem case and, and the things that upset me so terribly back then still could upset me but not to the same extent. So what happened before you were admitted into the psych ward? In what way? So what happened to lead you to be I had to being oh look there was a whole there were a string of things but a great deal of it was work related and I won't start on that because if I do then you won't shut me up for the next hour and a half and I'll get very upset and angry because I still do. I was also having other health problems. I have a thing called Crohn's disease and at the time I was having uh, that was causing problems and unfortunately that form of um, inflammatory bowel disorder it's if your mental health problems sort of accentuate it and then as you get sicker that your um, your mental health then gets worse the two seem to feed off each other and make you worse so that wasn't helping the, the great love of my life uh, my fiance she she then passed away that certainly didn't help but it was oddly enough her passing was became one of the things I ended up coping with best because I well I just started talking to her that became my my thing photo by my bed and I'd say good morning to her and and when I came home after work I'd sit down and talk tell her what happened during the day and it just helped me cope whereas I wasn't coping with anything else terribly well mm. and Again, there were some work issues that pushed me over the edge, which saw me, uh, by then I'd been self-harming, just slashing my arm with a knife. The doctor took one look at me and said, you sit there quietly, Ross, while I make a phone call, and organised my, my admission to the psych ward. Did you have any feelings about that, being admitted? Very uncertain. Like, I had no idea what to expect. Uh, so, I, you know, so I drove up off to the hospital and walked around to the ward carrying my suitcase and sorry I've jumped ahead of myself first I had to go and meet the uh, the their regist registrar who had a bit of a chat to me just to organize and make sure they you know I should be admitted and organizing things and then I went home grabbed packed my suitcase and came back and yeah I just walked down this long corridor in this rather quiet corner of Canberra Hospital sorry sorry to the like it was um, Calvary Hospital and I had no idea what to expect and uh, yeah so I was shown into a room and allowed to unpack my stuff and yeah that was the start of my, my little stay there does it look like just a regular room it is yes it's just a, a regular room that's sort of divided in two there's two two beds in that water at least there are two beds but each there is furniture that sort of divides the room in half, so you've sort of got two room, little rooms inside one room. So the, the two people in the room aren't in each other's pocket. You don't even really see each other because uh, the they sort of the two little rooms mirror each other. So you've, you've, your beds are in opposite corners with furniture in the way, so you don't really see each other. 
back then when they at the rear of the uh, ward they also had a nice garden area and there's even a tennis court believe it or not unfortunately that's all gone now with another building built on top of it but that was a we would end up spending quite a bit of time um but it was yeah it was essentially like any other trip to hospital it, but you weren't um, in a bed hooked up to ivs and things and the room was a little different but you had nurses around you, you um they're doing a checkup on you to make sure you, you know, where you are and that you're still there when you're first admitted you're on a 15 minute watch which means every 15 minutes they're checking to see where you are which i got aboard with so i end up teasing them by just stepping out of sight so they couldn't see me and didn't emerge until I could tell they were getting a bit worried. <laughs> what did you do those 10 days? Do you remember? What did I? What did you do? During the day? Days? Oh, well, there's, you would have, um, I each person had had a nurse as their primary carer there and they'd be checking on you each day uh, having a chat uh you'd have the uh psych the whoever the psychiatrist was would be coming to see you now and again they also had an activities coordinator who would be just organizing things for you to do so you weren't just all sitting around staring at the walls all day most exciting things from my perspective uh, such as sitting down stringing beads on string making pretend jewelry oh god uh that first time yes i arrived in time for painting of garden gnomes they were painting garden gnomes to look like the village people to enter them into a competition at uh, uh floriard and i thought oh god then there was drama class <laughs> which i yeah i clowned around a bit but oh but a lot of the, it is just you end up just sitting down and just chatting to other 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 patients, and particularly for those of us who were smokers, we'd be sitting outside, having a smoke, having a yarn. Um, it's a very yeah, it's a very laid back atmosphere. There, there aren't any leather couches to lie back on and to, to be analysed or anything. I was very disappointed by that. I was looking forward to that. It was not a terribly challenging experience at least for me i know some other people because they were in um different situations to me and some had were much had a greater trauma and they found it more difficult but most of us on that ward at least tended to find it almost relaxing and you would end up bonding with um, people in there so was the idea that you would have this bit of an escape from your oh, life? Oh, yes, it is partly an escape. It is, well, at the same time, they are keeping an eye on you, so they're helping assess what treatment you may need. You're put onto some sort of medication pretty much straight away, as as you is required. Uh, but, yeah, part of it is, yes, just giving you, is giving you a rest from from whatever it is that's causing you the problems is at the same time having you in a reasonably positive and supporting environment to help strengthen you a bit before going um, back out again so yes in a way it can be seen as a rest but a lot more than than that but it, it can be surprisingly restful actually
So you mentioned Hillary and her death and how that was one of the things that you surprisingly managed to cope with better than the other traumas mm-hmm. that were happening. Can you tell me a bit about Hillary? What was she like? Well, we met on the internet in a chat room and I fell in love with her very quickly and my courtship was actually conducted over the internet and the telephone because she was from Tennessee, uh, a Cherokee Indian actually, who was who had by chance ended up living back in the in the her, her people's original homelands they were kicked out of on the Trail of Tears, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, she was a teacher, taught handicapped children, doing life skills and things, but she, uh, she also clearly had depression and that's what led to her demise and in America they don't have the same support you do you have here. It's still a much bigger stigma there than it is here, although there's still stigma here. In fact, I find it a bit odd that in the in the States people are always going into rehab when it's not actually necessarily rehab, it could be a psychiatric ward which but it almost seems to be more acceptable to be thought to be going into rehab for drug <laughs> problems or something than it is to admit you're going into uh, to a psychiatric uh, treatment which it's, it's only going to hospital for an illness and that's all it is um, but uh, yes yeah, she passed away and uh, before we were able to get her re- relocated out here and married and all that sort of thing uh, that was in 2004 she passed away and I still miss her to this day but uh, it was something I coped with um, a lot better than I looking back I'm, I'm surprised I did cope as well with it though people at work just put everything ah oh, yeah his problems it's all because of his, his girlfriend well no it wasn't <laughs> but anyway I noticed, looking back, that was the thing that was made that relationship different. We had to communicate because we were only ever talking to each other, either by typing. I, I got to the point, I could tell her mood just by the way she typed. But uh, Telstra could have um, probably announced a, uh, an extra dividend that year just on my telephone bills alone. <laughs> I'm calling the US. Uh, and yeah, and because we had to talk that communication was much greater than in, in any other relationship I've ever had, which is, um, I think, is partly what led to me falling madly in love with her um, quite quickly. When would you talk to her during the day? Uh, at night. Okay, okay. At night, because the with with a fifteen-hour time zone difference, it's a killer. Sometimes I would get home from work and go to bed and pretty much straight away so I could have a few hours sleep then get up and uh, either get on online or, or give her a call. So what time was it when, when you would oh, do that? about midnight sometimes, 11 o'clock midnight. F- fortunately she uh, used, was an early riser. She seemed to think it was, you know, she felt guilty if she was sleeping in sort of thing. So she, uh, she was always up quite early which made it a bit easier. And then of course on weekends, yeah, it didn't, it didn't matter. Uh, but I know the first time we got seriously talking just online uh, I suddenly noticed the sun was up I'd been up talking all night and I had to go to work I hadn't slept <laughs> but we just yeah the night just disappeared without either of us realising well night for me day for her fortunately for her she wasn't working that day yeah that, that time zone factor was, was a damn nuisance 
um, and I, to be brutally honest, I wouldn't. I think I'd like to go through that that aspect of it again. What would you talk about? Oh, anything. <laughs> well, you know, we would talk to each other about what we'd be doing. Um, I was always interested to hear about what things she was up to because she was, well, she was the sort of person the local kids, if they found a, a hurt animal, they'd take it round to her to see if she could let her look after it. She had a pet iguana which lived in a big aquarium and it would, could get out and it would wander around the house and it, would, it was quite common. She'd wake up in the morning and there's Charlie the iguana on the pillow next to her. Uh, but she would <laughs> she would take it for a walks. She, she got a tiny little collar and a lead and she'd take it for walks outside <laughs> to give it exercise. Now she was uh, uh, a great lover of animals and things and also of love people and, and doing things and helping people. Um, so there was always something to talk about. She also lived in a rather unusual situation. Her part of Tennessee it was right on the edge of the mountains, Smoky Mountains. It was on the edge of the Bible Belt and and when I say in the mountains I mean full-on fair dinkum uh, hillbilly territory. In fact it was actually where Dolly Parton came from and she was a true hillbilly girl. And it was also the edge, uh, around redneck territory. So there was three very distinct, almost cultural clashes. And uh, she, as a, a, a Cherokee Indian, sort of didn't fit, didn't really fit into any of them. But uh, she soon became a, a big part of her local community. And I'm sure she's still, still missed by people who knew her there. So how long did you know her for? All up we were together, so to speak, for the best part of five years before she passed away. Wow. From, from when we um, just first started. And we just bumped into each other, um, figured really of course, in a chat room and just got chatting and just kept chatting. <laughs> it was easier for, for her too in that She's the sort of person who's always getting photographs taken of her. So she always had photographs to scan and send me, whereas it was very hard to get anything from me because I hate standing in front of a camera. So that always gave me something to to talk. What are you doing there? Well, what, what's that about? What's, yeah, so there was always something. Just like any other, any other couple, there's something to talk about. Sometimes just nonsense. And there was an election, a uh, US election during our time, so it was an interesting experience to see what was actually happening over there because I didn't understand the US system at all. I still don't understand all of it and seeing how things are quite different. Uh, it was also the 9-11 period so it was interesting seeing how there were ongoing reactions around the country. For example some poor tourists were just visiting a local lake near her area and someone saw them taking some photographs by the damn wall. Next minute they were arrested as potential terrorists. It was this, this ridiculous overkill. Uh, but that gave us plenty to talk about. And sometimes, arguing. <laughs> like any other couple. What would there be to argue about? Oh, silly things. I was late. <laughs> I was supposed to be, or I was supposed to have done something, and I didn't. 
There was also the fact that uh, what she didn't appreciate was how much I was drinking, because that alcohol became my stress valve at work, and I developed a full-on um, problem. And I went through periods of sobering up, and she knew I'd I'd been drinking, but it was only when I, uh, after a particularly bad escapade, I broke down and told her exactly how much I'd been drinking, and she laid down the law. She said, because she left home at 16, she left the reservation, the Cherokee reservation, because of alcohol problems around there, and she finished schooling and everything, um, living with her grandparents. And she said, Ross, I left home to get away from um, an alcohol problem, and I'm not going to go through that again for anyone, even you. So you make your choice. So the next day I called the, the doctor and went and spoke to him about it and told him exactly what I had been drinking and and immediately started going to AA meetings. So I was essentially I was given the right nudge at the right time to uh, uh, clean my act up and uh, get sober. So you were drinking every day? Yep, yep. I used to drink, well, I, I had drunk heavily for years, but it was just me being one of those people who used to go out and, and booze heavily. But when I finally had to admit there was a problem, I did sober up for a period of months. But then I started drinking again, but only at home. I'd make a big thing about not being seen ever drinking in public. But uh, when I got home, um, I'd take the top off a bottle of bourbon and just start slugging straight out of the bottle very quickly. And that way I'd be absolutely smashed out of my head by oh, about, about, say, 11 o'clock or so the latest and you're going to bed and you've slept it off by the next morning. Bit of a headache and that's about it. So no one knew I was still drinking. And uh, after Hillary um, gave me the right nudge, uh, I went to work. The next day I also went and spoke to, had a quiet word to my boss and told him, look, I, you know, I'm supposed to be sober, well, I've been drinking again and very badly. And he said, well, you had me fooled, I didn't know, you'd started again. And uh, he was very supportive and said, any time you need to go take some time out and go to a meeting, you know, a meeting or something, just go. Which was also really good. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I drank very heavily. It was also, <laughs> um, with my doctor, because of my Crohn's disease at the time I had to go a battery of blood tests every six months and when I owned up to just how much I was drinking he said you know that actually explains something oh, he said your blood tests I was starting to wonder a bit about this particular one here now that makes sense Ross you were on your way to major um, internal problems but as uh, subsequent tests over time showed um, that particular thing improved so I've avoided um, liver problems and that sort of stuff. You know, obviously, you know, got there at the right time. Can I ask how much you were drinking each night? Oh, a bottle of bourbon, or best part of a bottle of vodka, or a couple of litres of wine, whatever. But uh, it, was, it was always a hard liquor. I'd, if I'm just wanting to get drunk, I just if I drank beer, if I just wanted to have a drink to have a you know a social enjoy the drink. But to get drinking to get drunk, no, just straight into the. I like bourbon. Well. I liked bourbon, I assume I still would if I tried it. And it was just drinking it straight, and just straight out of the bottle. Sitting in front of the telly with a you know, 750ml bottle of um, hard liquor and just, well not sculling it, but slurping away very quickly. And I had a, to help keep this illusion that I didn't drink, I, I avoided the 
you know, a lot of the bigger supermarket bottle shops and things, I used to go out of my way to to go somewhere where I right. I don't think anyone around around here would have seen me before, so I'll slip in here and grab several bottles, and that's a few days worth to keep me going. And uh, yes, I used to drive all over Canberra just to go places I didn't think anyone would have seen me before, just to stock up. What did the alcohol do for you? Get drunk and the things that are upsetting you and worrying you, they just aren't anymore. Yeah, it's just a stress valve. Well, for me, it was a stress valve. Um, as I said, as I've said a couple of times, I used to drink a fair bit anyway, but that was for fun. Uh, the, what was fun about waking up horribly hungover, I, I don't know. But when it, I t used it to release stress, because I was in a very stressful position at work at the time, when I started doing that, and it just, you didn't necessarily feel good, but you just didn't care, I think was probably the the thing. And uh, yeah, and start the cycle again the next day. I used to keep a bottle of vodka in the boot of the car too. If I was having a particularly bad day and I wasn't going to cope, I'd slip out at lunchtime and pretend to be getting something out of the boot of the car and I was just grabbing the bottle to have a quick slurp and uh, that would keep me going. But that, I didn't, fortunately I didn't have to do that too often. So when Hillary said what she did and made you quit, or made you at least commit to quit, did you manage to do it straight away, or was there a bit of going back and forth? I have only, I've only had one one real proper slip off the wagon, because I yeah I went to the dock, I went to the AA meetings, and was doing all the right things, and I was going to I didn't do the twelve step program. I was instead was just going to I just had the the program that showed meetings all over town and because there's a, there's a meeting at least one meeting of AA somewhere in town every day seven days of the week at least one and so I I could go to early morning ones lunchtime ones evening ones so I was slipping off to to an AA meeting somewhere almost every every day and they help because you're just sitting there with other people who know what what you're going through and you're just sharing each other's experiences and being supportive of each other. And then after Hillary passed away, it then became a big thing for me that it would be, I suppose, dishonouring, I don't like that expression, but dishonouring her memory to be slipping back. And the only time I did slip back was at a wedding. And I, got, I did end up terribly drunk, and I woke up the following morning and I don't remember getting home and there was a car in the driveway so I'd obviously driven home rotten drunk and that afternoon I had to fly to Perth with work and I was not having touched a drop for quite a while I was very hungover and I can assure you fly <laughs> a plane flight long plane flight across country that is no way to it, it's not fun when you're hungover so I was felt oh god I was, that was enough to put me back on the wagon I was just so sick you have said that um, you felt that drinking would dishonour Hillary's memory. So what led you to drinking at that wedding? Oh, look, it was just an out, uh, an outdoor reception and everyone was trying to, you know, they had um, waiters and things coming around trying to give you drinks all the time. So in the end, 
I made the mistake of just grabbing a glass of light beer and hanging on to it, thinking right now they'll leave me alone. And the cook, no, they weren't going around offering me more, more drinks because I had one in my hand, but of course I ended up, oh, what the hell, and I drank it, and then I drank a few more, and then I stopped drinking light and ended up drinking heavy beers, and then uh, my friend whose wedding it was, he, he was a bit of a, a wine fancier, so the, some, the nice wines came out, so oh, yeah, I'll get into them, and then uh, then the, whisk, the good whiskey bottle came around, so by well, then I just didn't care, and I... Um, yeah, it was more of the circumstances because I, for a long time, I just avoided ever being in that sort of situation. It's just this was the wedding of a very good friend, and uh, no, I know I was going to miss that, but I was able to avoid the situation for a long time, um, which was one of my ways of um, coping with it. Whereas now, it doesn't worry me. I can, you know, I don't like drunks, but I can. It doesn't worry me going to the going to the pub or a club with someone for dinner or whatever. Because I just always drink soft drink. What were you like as a drunk? Oh, uh, you know, some people, they just get angry and just want to fight everyone. Other people actually get very sleepy. You'll see them just, you know, you'll see them propped up in a corner, passed out. I wasn't either of those. I was the third type of drunk. I was the sort of drunk even other drunks uh, try to avoid. I was the pain in the ass drunk. Oh, and it, sometimes it'd be like an out-of-body experience, like I was looking down on myself. Oh, shut up! Don't do that! Don't say that! Don't say... Oh, God, you've gone and said... Oh, no. Yeah, I was a pain in the ass. It's that simple. Yeah, oh. Wouldn't shut up, annoying people. Like, oh. <laughs> I cringe just to, just remembering it. So, after the wedding, apart from your hangover, how did you feel having... I shamed, embarrassed... And as I felt sicker and sicker on that, that, that air flight, I just kept saying to myself, you're not doing that again, you're not doing that again. But no, I felt very ashamed. Uh, for myself, for, for people who believed that, you know, were believing in me now that I'd sobered up. Um, yeah, it just felt pretty rotten. But you've been sober now for about 11 years? Oh, it's actually about 14 years, all up. Apart from that slip yeah. in 2005 yeah. odd. Yeah, apart, apart from that one, yeah, okay. I've been sober. How are you doing these days? How's your depression? I still have problems with the anxiety. I go through phases where I just don't want to leave my room. And I don't want to leave the house. And I, and it's just me looking after myself. Uh, I know the worst signs. I've got some social network, which if I get off my backside and go out and um, catch up with them, that helps a lot. And it was actually through the comedy that I also ended up developing another routine. Because I, 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 I realised if my anxiety aspect was playing up, it was an absolute waste of time me walking onto the stage. I was unhappy, I didn't want to be there, I wasn't going to perform well, I wasn't going to be funny, the audience didn't want, you know, they weren't going to enjoy it. But I developed a routine by being able to just you know, stick the earphones in and I've got a collection of music tracks that I play and listen to, they just get me a more upbeat. 
What are some of those songs? Oh, it's a mixture of all sorts of stuff. Um, ACDC. There's a couple of Ricky Lee Coulter in there. Um, Also, old old boogie numbers. It's a it's a very eclectic mix, and uh, that uh, that that um, folder on on the computer's got seventy odd songs in there these days. And so that's always on my MP3 player. That and a couple of simple meditations, which can also be good to for me to listen to to help settle me. Hmm. So, how long after Hillary's death did you start considering dating again? A long time. Uh, I've never been very good at uh, on the dating scene, to be honest. I've always been a bit uncomfortable. I, uh, making those those connections don't ask me why I've asked myself that and I don't have an answer but certainly several years it, you know it just never seriously um, occurred to me to, to even think about it and since then there hasn't been a huge amount but uh, there's been some casual dating uh, it's, you know, when you get to my age I'm 53 I don't like going to you know you know, loud clubs and discos and all that sort of stuff. So, where do I even go to meet people these days? Can be a bit of a bit of a thing. But where do you go to meet people? Uh, it's happened mainly uh, through other things I've done. I've, I've I've gotten to meet someone, and um, eventually we've gone out and we'll have a coffee or something, and we'll have a few dates, and then then sort of don't do that dates you know it hasn't been anything serious since Hillary I haven't found anyone that I've wanted to be serious with and I don't think I've found anyone who wanted to be terribly serious with me either uh, I'm f- I'm past stressing about it to be honest what are you looking for in a relationship companionship is the big one for me someone to be comfortable with to talk with do things with uh, to be f- to feel comfortable with, I think. Well, not so much. No, comfortable's the wrong thing. But certainly companionship, where you, you can talk, you, d- you disagree, you can, you've got some sort of interests in common, other things that aren't in common. Yeah, I, I, I've asked myself that question: What do I wa- want in someone? I don't really have an answer. <laughs> I'm not really sure. Like I stumbled over Hillary by accident, and that was after a. Um, Another short, short relationship that I thought was going to be the one had ended up um, ugly and horrible finish. Uh, and yet I stumbled into Hillary just purely by accident, and it turns out she was the one, right? I believe. Do you think that you'll ever find someone that you could love more than Hillary? More than Hillary? They'd have to be pretty special, but um, I wouldn't be, in any, any future relationship, I wouldn't be trying to compare them back to Hillary. The Hillary. My Hillary experience is done and gone. I still miss her to this day, but not like I did. But I wouldn't be holding anyone else up to for comparison there. It's, if I was genuinely interested in someone else, it would be for their sake. And I'm sure Hillary, if she was around, would get somewhere. She'd be wanting me to to move on anyway. Certainly, if it was the other way, I'd want her to move on. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, okay. What I do, what I do, da da do, da da do. Love Canberra is written and produced by me, Ivana Ho. The theme music is by Proletur. Interstitial music is by Poddington Bear and Kevin MacLeod. Love Canberra is taking a short break, but please do keep your emails coming. I've had a few stories that I wanted to explore for a while, and maybe you'll be the one to talk to me about them. For instance, is there someone you can't stop thinking about who you haven't spoken to for weeks, months, or even years? Write in and tell me about them. Also, do you have a best friend? Why are they your best friend? And what's your relationship been like with them? Hit me up at lovecamberapodcast at gmail.com. I'll be back in six weeks, but when I return, here's what I have in store for you. We call me, well, they refer to me as, as Daddy to, to James, and I'm involved in his life and their life by association. Well, no, I'm involved in their life because they're friends. I kept my ring. I, I wore my ring for two years. I wasn't interested in another woman. Um, I I didn't want to date. I didn't want to meet anyone. Um, you know, I swore I'd never have another woman in my house. I think um, other people might be more familiar with the term flashlight. Yeah, they're just around here. Ah, okay. Yeah, he's flashlight. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And as you can see, we've got like one style of flashlight left. And that's because it is the most popular brand. That's next time on Love, Canberra. Thanks for listening. <laughs>